Hi, and welcome to the Perpetual Stew. Uh, I'm Matt Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And uh, today we're going to be talking about something, a term that we've been tossing around a bit, uh, called stable leadership. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, apologies in advance if you're sensitive. I'm in microphone hell, so we're just recording this on my built-in microphone on my MacBook and calling it a day. So here we go. I think you sound lovely. (laughs) (laughs) And and this, this is... The the topic of leadership has been, I think, all the news is sort of we enter crypto winter or like the meltdown of SPF and also the sort of slow rolling disaster um, that is Twitter and Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, could you set the stage a little bit? Tell us a little bit about what's going on. I know that you've talked to uh, uh, to someone in tech about this. What exactly is going on at Twitter? Okay, so obviously, as we all know, Elon Musk paid $44 billion, which is a huge overvaluation for Twitter, but he paid for it. He has been doing things like liquidating his Tesla stock. We love to see it. Um, He has fired like whole entire... So so before Elon took over, Twitter employed about 7,500 people. And when I say that Elon Musk has fired entire like sections of the company, so... Uh, like every single person in charge of like badges and security. So there were people literally stuck in the parking garage last Friday uh, because the person in charge of the badges, they had to call a security person to bring a Sawzall to cut the arm off of the um, garage uh, at Twitter because people were not able to get out. So what that's, that's crazy. It's awesome. Um, (laughs) He also, um, he sent out an email that said, um, just imagine getting an email from your boss that said the new Twitter will be super hardcore. Hardcore was the word that he used. And he was implying in this email that like, not only were you going to have to come back to work, but you're probably going to work 80 to hundred hour weeks. Like there was going to be like constant crunch. Um, since then he has brought in Tesla software engineers to try to troubleshoot Twitter. Um, some other fun things that are going on is Twitter is running live in dev. So, uh, in in the um, software engineering world, it's kind of like um, opening a restaurant, but all you serve are sandwich ingredients. So it's like <laughs> opening a restaurant that's saying we're a sandwich shop, but all you can get is like a pile of turkey and like slices of bread and like a little container of mayonnaise. And you're like, well, this isn't a sandwich, but it's fine. You have all the stuff to make a sandwich. So uh, as Elon fires more and more, so Twitter, if if you don't know, is an old company. I was on Twitter until I was banned for bullying Trump supporters since I was in college, and I'm 35 now. So um, it, it had a lot it's of it's a, a legacy company. <clears throat> it's a legacy company at this point. And if you don't know about legacy companies, especially in the digital space, they're really, really reliant on about 10 people who have been there since the beginning. They're really, really reliant on people who know the ins and outs of all their servers who know the weird little like quirks in their code or whatever it is. And Elon Musk has fired all those people. Mm -hmm. So when you, you're, you're not even joking about the slow roll destruction of Twitter. Like they were going to come in one day and try to log on and it's just not going to work. So one of my favorite aspects of this is that a lot of uh, apparently hundreds of former Twitter employees still have access uh, to all of the code, all of the backend systems, 
because apparently the people who were supposed to control that access are also gone now. Yep. And so the, the internal like messaging system, they have like an internal version of Slack um, at uh, uh, Twitter. And normally those conversations are automatically set to private so that, you know, nobody can see what they're doing in there. So for some reason, those channels got opened up as automatically public. So they have been posting um, like a bunch of the backend code and like all the bugs and all the problems. Um, there will be, if there not hasn't, if there hasn't already been like massive exposures of personal data. Um, and the reason that it's funny is because like for everybody that's ever worked for a shitty boss, like within five minutes of reading about Elon Musk, you're like, Oh, well, damn, he's like top of the pile. He's um, every stereotype, every uh, joke, so every meme about a shitty boss just sort of like walking around in real life. The degree to which Elon Musk is Michael Scott on his worst day, like cannot be overstated. <laughs> on the first day that he, he quote unquote owned Twitter, he brought a sink into the oh, lobby of Twitter and said, let that sink in. Like that's that's a prison mic level joke. And, and I don't. Who- who I mean, you know, he didn't source that sink himself, right? Right. Like at no point was anybody like, "This is really dumb." Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't think anybody understands the degree to which someone like Elon Musk is both destructive and so painfully lame that, like, at the same time that you hate them and hate their guts, like in a weird way, you can't help but feel a little bit sorry for them because you're like. God damn, you are the most irritating person that I've ever met in my life. It reminds me a little bit. This is a little bit of a stretch, but in terms of personality, I remember in high school, there are these bunch of guys who uh, got caught up in this like uh, cologne thing where the cologne was supposed <laughs> to have like pheromones in it that attracted <laughs> yeah. women. So they would, they put this stuff on constantly and- yeah. I just remember thinking at the time, as I sat there with my girlfriend, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with our girlfriend at the time, how painfully lame that was for the guys to be doing that. And they're like con- talking to each other, like incredibly convinced that this was the secret uh, to solving all of their problems. And then they didn't realize that the, the, the problem that they were having was that they were spending their time looking up pheromone colognes as opposed to being someone, you know, that women found interesting or attractive, like being in a band, playing sports, treating women nicely, (laughs) doing nice things for them, like approaching them as if they are like humans with thoughts and feelings and dreams instead of like, you know, like a deer in the woods and you're pouring dough piss all over yourself, you know? Exactly. Like making friends with their their friends. Like that's a really, I remember the first, the, 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 the way that I actually uh, got that first chance to like hang out with the person who would then be my, my girlfriend in high school was that um, her best friend was dating one of my best friends. And so I got to know her friend who could vouch that I was a cool dude. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, oh, wow. I, I don't have, I, I love the analogy of like dousing yourself in dope piss. Like that is. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's just perfect. like men talk about like, I don't think that they realize when they talk about like essentially tricking women into sleeping with them that they're like, 
approaching this with the same logic as like a rabbit hunter. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, well, we're going to put mineral blocks in a semicircle because that's the way that we know that they move. And then I think you could, you get really plug one. Just like, what the fuck, dude? And and this sort of mentality appears to be treat. I I think the problem is that treating it like a technical problem, as opposed to like a human (laughs) relationship. (laughs) Oh, there was a great meme going around last week that was like, people who are like confused by Pete Davidson are so close to figuring out that the problem is their personality, but they're just not quite there yet. Like, <laughs> that has always cracked me up. I'm just like, no, he seems like a legitimately cool dude. Seems fine. Like, make, he seems so sense. funny. Like, he seems like uh, the thing that <clears throat> men don't understand is like, like the reason that I fall all over myself and would crawl over broken glass for my boyfriend is because like, no matter what I'm thinking or feeling, I can say it to him and he's not going to treat it like it's something that he's tolerating for like (laughs) the purpose of getting pussy. Like it really engages with like my thoughts and feelings. And I imagine that Pete Davidson is probably the same. Like even when Kim Kardashian is like, I'm just like kind of afraid that like, what if curves go out of style? He's probably like, listen, babe, I think you're beautiful. Like, I think you're beautiful. And no matter what, like you're an icon. Okay. You are an icon. Whatever you do, like people are going to do, you make the trends. She'd be like, Oh my God, you're so right. Like you don't understand how to do it. You just have to treat them like their thoughts and feelings matter to you. (laughs) Yes. And I think this also goes back to, you know, talking a little bit about leadership, um, about uh, stable leadership. I think there's an important lesson here though. And this is something um, I think people like Elon Musk uh, or a lot of these, so I'm going to use in the heaviest possible uh, finger quotes, wonderkins, uh, <laughs> fail to understand is that, you know, him trying to revert a legacy company back to a startup, we're understaffed, we all work a million hours, we have no lives, is not effective leadership. And for a couple reasons, and this is me uh, sort of just taking a look at the the literature on this and also my own experiences, is that like, you know, different organizations, different people have different needs. Yep. And for a large organization with thousands of employees, you know, we're not talking about like, they're not working out of a a, a garage or a a basement or, you know, um, (laughs) they're working. These are full-time professionals with families, with friends, with full lives, right? These are not uh, the people who start, the reasons why these people work for Twitter, they're not trying to start the next Twitter, right? (laughs) They're trying to keep a legacy company going. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they joined onto Twitter. The vast majority of the employees there joined onto Twitter once Twitter was already an established organization that could pay benefits and a salary, right? They're willing (laughs) to give up some upside, right, in exchange for having a stable middle-class life, right? Yeah. That they don't want to work at a startup because they don't want to work 100 hours a week at the beck and call or the whims of one dude. Basically, they want to make sure that they can plan their babysitter. They yes. want to make sure that they can have family dinner. They can, they can, um, you know, have brunch with their friends, um, that they can see a sick relative uh, when necessary, that yeah. they can, that they can do all the things that most people enjoy doing. And I'm just going to have to say, having worked with a lot of, you know, people who are founders in the founder space, 
they are generally not those types of people. They generally, at least at first, especially when they're in like founder mode, they don't have hobbies. They're not making room for relationships, right? They're 100% devoted to what they're doing. And that's not where employees at legacy companies are. And that's not the leadership they need. And, and, you know, on a very, very basic level, if you admire Elon Musk, so Elon Musk is kind of legendary, both professionally and personally for just discarding like a narcissist, a narcissist goes through, wait, let me look up the stages of narcissistic abuse. <laughs> Cause it, it has, um, there we go. The narcissistic abuse cycle has four steps. So uh, let me pull it up here because I this is this is so so common. So step one is idealize. Uh, this is the phase of immense flattery, gifts, excessive attention to appeal to your heart, weaken your defensive mechanisms, uh, and allow you to be drawn into the whirlwind of into a whirlwind romance without even realizing it. So I think if we're going to apply this to like Elon Musk specifically, I think this would be like the early you know, Tesla, um, SpaceX kind of days where we're like, wow, look at this man doing all this innovation. Little did we know he had absolutely nothing to do with that. He, he bought a, you know, controlling share of stock and then sued for the right to be called founder. Okay. Two, devalue. Admiration ceases to exist and is replaced by verbal and emotional abuse. This phase is characterized by cruel, degrading, and condescending remarks often disguised as jokes and sarcasm. Victims feel confused, doubt themselves, and develop low self-esteem. Stage three, discard. This is where the victim's usefulness to the abuser has ceased. The abuser has found a new supply, someone to replace the victim to fulfill their needs. The victim is tormented and thrown away as if the love shared between them never existed. Step four, Hoover. Uh, the narcissist attempts to draw the victim back into an abusive relationship by any means necessary, begging, crying, guilt tripping, projecting, blame shifting, etc. And then it just goes right back up to idealize. Well, that describes sort of what he's been doing this entire time with Twitter, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think now, after Elon realized that he had fired people necessary to the organization, and I think you mentioned, and I think this is a really important thing, is the idea of institutional knowledge, that there yeah. are you know a handful of people who have been there for a long time who really know the business inside and out, and he discarded those people. Yep. Um, and in some cases, now he's trying to woo them back. Um, but I'm going to say this from personal experience. I was brought into an organization at one point, and I realized that part of the reason I was brought in was to try to push out uh, the old guard at the institution, yeah. uh, which I, once I did my own analysis of the situation, was totally the wrong move. Yeah. Um, that it was true that the institution needed to innovate and deliver a uh, new product for uh, a new generation of customers. But their legacy customer base um, was still the primary uh, driver of profit and of money. Yep. And the people who I was had been brought in to help push out were the people who had those relationships, uh, who knew that material, who had built those relationships over literally decades Right, literally Oof. decades, and pushing them out would destabilize uh, the organization in the medium, in the short and medium term, because there was no ready uh, replacement for those relationships, that knowledge, and pretty much a plug and play. Like it didn't take a lot of oversight to make those, to make that revenue stream happen, to make that profit yep. happen. Instead, what the institution needed to do was allow the legacy people to continue on, 
while focusing other institutional resources and personnel to the innovation side, sort of like bifurcate the focus, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, that did not happen, um, unfortunately, to a large extent at that place. But it, w- it was very clear to me. And I think this is something that especially people who view themselves as innovators uh, yeah. can overlook is the importance of people who've been there, done that, know how to do it, and don't require significant oversight. <laughs> and and there's this really essential thing too that happens like whenever you whenever you encounter the innovation process as like a new person or with new eyes or whatever like you're going to ask five out of the 10 things like why don't we do it this way one of the old people can tell you exactly why like you know it's it's going to we we tried to do that 2 years ago like we got about halfway through the process and realized that we couldn't actually pull this off without x y or z right like and that person saves you the fucking time money and energy to go through that process again and and come up against the same part where it gets all fucked up again right like and i that's such a valuable person in legacy companies as a former employee of like an actual printed newspaper was like the number of people when I would get frustrated with something, they'd be like, well, yeah, we actually tried that uh, like a year and a half ago and here's what happened. If you don't have those people around, all you're going to do is chase down a bunch of dead ends and you still have to pay people for that time. You're just going to have very little to show for that product once you're done for it, once you're done with it, you know? And even let's say, and that's in best case scenario, you're not actually paying for that time. (laughs) But what you're doing is you're spending organizational time and organizational yeah. resources that should be focused in, in other places that could be uh, on efforts that could be um, summed up by a short 10 minute conversation of someone telling you the history yeah. of why yes, this doesn't exactly. work. <laughs> yes. and I'll use another example. Uh, there is one organization I, I worked for who, were, who was trying to transition to a new project management uh, solution. Yeah. And which looked really shiny on on its surface. Uh-huh. The problem was is that these attempts had happened before and what it ended up doing was duplicating work. Um, that people would not just have to update through the uh, the project management system, but because certain members of the organization uh, would not use it, would not keep their thing updated, you ended up having to update everyone two ways, through the project oh management and through the the normal uh, and through the normal pre-existing channels like email, shared documents, stuff like that. So that's why previous efforts uh, had failed. And so, but of course, the new the new uh, management didn't know or didn't care um, and didn't ask. I want to note, this is oh the most God. important thing. Didn't really ask the, the people on the line. They just sort of dumped it on people in literally the middle of a meeting that they were doing this. Um, oh my God. Yeah, of a presentation about something else entirely. I want to note this. Uh, And the person giving the presentation, who is an outside consultant, had no idea that she had just stepped on a landmine. She's like, you know, maybe this is something to consider for your organization. They're like, oh, we're already doing this. And then the entire room goes, what? (laughs) We're doing what and how? Um, And I want to note this was at a time when – too much man when employees were already complaining that the leadership uh, was doing things and making decisions without asking for input. <laughs> um, so, so they they heard that feedback loud and clear. In yeah, other well, words, one hundred percent. And and you can see why. You know, when when we talk about uh, uh, stable leadership, we're also talking about uh, leadership that incorporates 
some of the softer parts of management, the, the people management side of it, that you can have a great idea. Let's, let's say objectively, Sarah, that this is a perfect, that this is going to work, right? Let's just say we yes. can see the future yes. and we say that, the, that if everyone's on board, this project <laughs> management solution is going to work, right? What's the problem with springing this on people out of nowhere? Number one, people are shitty at adapting to change. Number two, successful work relies on routine. Number three, if you're going to disrupt people's routine, like learning as you get older, as your brain loses its neuroplasticity becomes a little bit more difficult. And like, there is a meme going around that I love because I'm 35. I am 35 goddamn years old. And the last time that I got hired for um, a freelance writing job, you know, they were like, well, we're going to need you to log into Rooster and then we'll send you assignments through your bing bong. And then, and by like the end of my onboarding of all the new, like their version of Slack, right? Like their proprietary version of uh, Asana or whatever it is. Like by the time that you're done with teaching a new employee or an old employee, like any, like anytime you're going to disrupt an old routine and try to get people to change their workflow, that's actually a, a tremendous ask of the average employee. Mm-hmm. And you can spring it on them out of nowhere. Let, let's say it would have succeeded if you had their buy-in by springing yeah, it on it them out succeeded. of nowhere. But now, uh, because people feel like they're not, you know, being listened to and involved in the process, they're going to be really, really recalcitrant to pick up this new thing because it, it's one of those things where like, everybody wants to feel like their their contribution matters and that they're more than just like, you know, a number on a line at a company. And anytime any leadership says, well, this is how it's going to be and you just need to get used to it. Like, that's a really good way to just make sure that as many people as possible reject whatever your idea is. Yeah, and I'm going to say this as someone who likes to disrupt things, who likes to innovate, who likes to try new things. I'm weird. <laughs> yeah. And I think that little bit of self-awareness helps. That yeah. um, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite things from a book ever is actually from this ridiculous uh, fantasy series, but I'm not going to talk about it because the authors turned out to be horrible people, but I'm oh, not, no. not going to mention the names, but this was a good piece of insight, is that at the end of the series, what the main character gets the power of God, basically, uh, to reshape okay. the universe, and okay. gives it up. Doesn't change okay. anything, just relinquishes it back out into the universe. And when asked why... <laughs> He says, because my idea of heaven, this is quoting, my idea of heaven is someone else's idea of hell. Yeah. Uh, and so we're all going to be a little annoyed and upset. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not going to all be 100% happy, uh, but we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And that thing, that recognition that maybe what I think is right, maybe what I enjoy, what how I would want things to be is not universally shared. And is also, I want to note, is not objectively correct. <laughs> yes. Right? Uh, is, I think, a key important part of what leadership is because you're not leading an army of clones. Correct. Elon Musk is not leading Twitter as a company that is staffed only by you know, thousands of Elon Musks, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although that would be funny because, you know, Musk being a notoriously bad coder, you know, yeah. um, may, maybe I think things would go hilariously bad there. Um, <laughs> but in recognizing, hey, this is, I'm a leader, I'm successful, and I'm weird. So yep. when I'm designing a workplace, when I'm designing a workplace culture, when I'm designing solutions, 
maybe I shouldn't design them for the things I would like. Correct. Maybe I should design them for the ways, and this is where listen where the listening comes in, um, that actually meet the needs of my employees so they can do their best work in an environment that is best for them, not an environment best for me. Exactly. That's that's that to me is was such an easy first thing to pick up. Like, and you know, I only have one employee that like works for me on a consistent basis and one and then like a bunch of market helpers. But one of the first things that I said to her was, ultimately I want you to treat this kitchen as if it's your space. So organize it the way you want it, organize it in a way that makes sense to you. Like I'll pay you for that time. Like I just want this to flow for you and you can come in and feel relaxed and just put in your headphones and go down the, the prep list. There's no reason this this job should be stressful. And it, it th- to me, to me, right, as a person who's not trying to, for example, win my father's approval by way of my business success, um, <laughs> to me, that felt like an obvious thing because at the end of the day, what matters to me in my business is that I get to sleep at night and, and that no matter what happens to Metal Honey Foods, I feel good about how I treated people. I know that I didn't exploit anybody. I know that everybody got paid a fair wage. Um, and so on and so forth. But Elon Musk um, is desperately trying to win people's approval through uh, through business success. But Sarah, let's say you didn't care about any of those things, that you really just cared about Metal Honey performing economically the best, the financially the best way it could. Why is your approach still the right one? Well, because I'm still treating people like they're human. Like you, you know, you still have people working for you at the end of the day. Like this drives me fucking crazy. The last big fight that I had with my last big org manager was somebody who changed the protocol. I'm not shitting you once a week. And I finally said, this is impossible. Like you, you realize what you're doing is you're making it impossible for most of us to be successful at work because every time the protocol changes, like I'm going to speak up for myself and I guarantee you I'm speaking up for more than half of the people, but like you can't spring change on us once every five days because that's as long as we work and then expect everybody to keep pace with us because we're just people. We have thoughts and feelings outside of our jobs that also require our attention and like our our attentive, <clears throat> excuse me, division. So you just can't treat people like clones. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I, 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 and I think that's such a key that you're that your recognition of how to get the best work out of your employee yeah. was to allow them to set up their workspace to do the tasks that they need to do as efficiently as they can do it. Yeah. As you know, obviously within the confi- confines of the law, right? Because you are dealing with, <laughs> with a food product, but you know, you're saying what would make you do your best work? Not yeah. how would I set it up? How I would want to do it because you're not the one doing the work. That's right. Right. That's the whole point of having the employee. And I think the, cla- <laughs> the classic B school example of this is the Toyota um, assembly line that yep. when they started build, when Toyota started uh, making factories in the United States, their executives came over and took a look uh, at the, at the assembly lines. Cause they had basically just recreated the same sort of factories that they had in Japan. Yep. And one thing they noticed is that, and that a bunch of uh, line workers mentioned to them is that the shelves and everything were too low yep. because the average American yep. employee was a few inches taller than the average Japanese employee. Yep. So what did Toyota do? They, I, I guarantee they raised the shelves. Exactly. They just raised the shelf. <laughs> they just raised the fucking shelves. Because the key is making the workplace efficient, safe, 
because that, you know, bending over an extra few inches doesn't seem like a lot in isolation, but imagine doing it dozens or hundreds of times a day, every single day that you work. It's that little bit of bending over will not just cause you time, it'll cause health problems, uh, which then cause all sort of losses to efficiency. So that capacity to listen and care and then make the adjustment that the employees need, because in this case, you're just suiting a different set of bodies. Yep. Right. And to make sure that your employee works the best that you can, because you can say, well, the shelf is the right height for me. (laughs) That's right. Right. And this is, this is what Elon is essentially saying. He's saying, well, the hours are fine for me. The the doesn't, I don't, as a person who doesn't like my family, just like my father didn't like his family. Yeah. Who cares about vacations and weekends and, and kids and all those things? I don't spend time with my children. You don't need to either. Right. And, for Elon, that works. But for someone else, that could be crushing to the point. And I'm just going to take the personal out of it. I'm just going to say they're going to be miserable and they're not going to do their best work. Yep. Um, real quick, I have two articles. I I knew that Elon Musk was a shithead a long time ago. And like the one thing I can't stand is like hero worship of shitty people, especially shitty white men. But there are two headlines that I want to read and just like a tiny clip of these two articles. So this is actually from 2018. And I was like, I saw a rumor about this on Twitter and I was like, no fucking way. Report. Tesla factory workers are in danger because Elon Musk hates the color yellow. Wait, what? This Tesla factories are not as safe for employees as Tesla would have you believe, according to a report from revealnews.org, a nonprofit news operation based out of the Bay Area. The company reportedly misreported injuries at its factory in Fremont, California, to make things seem better than they actually are. Company officials labeled toxic exposures, muscle strains, and repetitive stress injuries as personal medical issues or minor accidents requiring only first aid. Among the more baffling details in the report are several sections about how Elon Musk's personal tastes appear to have affected the factory's safety for the worse. Quote, his preferences were well known and led to cutting back on those standard safety signals. Musk, apparently, really hates the color yellow. So instead of using the aforementioned hue, lane lines on the factory floor are painted with shades of gray. Tesla denies this and sent reveal photos of rails and posts painted yellow in the factory. He is also not into having too many signs or the beeping sound forklifts make in reverse. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack there. Lots to unpack there. Um, Here's another one. Um, Elon Musk is infamous for firing his long-term employees. um, And sometimes, okay, this is how, this is the, the article. This is how it started. Elon Musk fired his long-term assistant who had worked for him for 12 years after she had asked for a raise. Mary Beth had worked for present-day Tony Stark for 12 years. She was so close to him. Uh, to uh, To some point, she was considered an extension of Elon. She committed to him entirely. She worked for long hours, including weekends and late nights, as she would travel back and forth from Los Angeles to Silicon Valley every week. She used to manage Elon's schedule between Tesla and SpaceX. She also assisted in public relations and making company decisions. In in essence, she was viewed as a devoted personal assistant. She would bring him food, manage his business appointments, plan time with his kids, plan time with his kids, (laughs) cater for his clothes, handle handle the press when needed, pull him out of meetings so he can stay on schedule. Um, But Mary Beth knew her worth and she thought it was time to ask for a raise. So she approached Elon with her request. This is what Musk told her. Look, I think you're very valuable. Maybe that compensation is right. 
you need to take two weeks vacation. And I'm going to assess whether or not that's true. Um, uh, after two weeks, he had made a discovery. He had known he can work comfortably without Beth assistance. So he fired her from her role. <sighs> 12 years, 12 years of nights and weekends doing every fucking thing that little man child said. And he said, I'm just going to see if I can do without you. Oh, I can. Goodbye. <laughs> like the degree to which I know that like we make jokes about like eh, everyone's a narcissist, but like Elon Musk is a narcissist and a sociopath. And like, this is what happens when we allow narcissists and sociopaths to rise to the top of yeah. corporate America is Every single, no one else is a person to Elon Musk. I don't like, his children are not people to him. His wives are not people to him. His employees are not people. The only person, the only, you know, non-NPC in Elon's world is Elon Musk. Yeah. And all the rest of us are just characters for him to play around with. Like, you need to understand that these narcissists do not think of other people as people in any form, shape, or fashion. And it, it 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 not just hurts, you know, the 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 assistant in this case, right? The problem is, is that it sounds to me like she was helping create structure, order, yeah. uh, and to manage the sort of day, the the sort of like ebbs and flows of everyday life that stress out everyone, right? Yep. One of the great benefits of having money is you can hire someone to help, you know remember things for you, schedule things for you, basically yeah. just make make all those things so much easier to manage. Lord knows I wish uh, I had someone who reminded me about all my meetings and, you know, handled, you know, the, the routine stuff that, that, that goes with life, just reminding me of when I need to get oil changes uh, <laughs> for my car, right? <laughs> I know. Um, or who can just like, quietly know that I'm out of, uh, that I'm out of cream cheese so that uh, it's just there for me when I buy bagels. Right. Oh my God. Have, have you ever heard stories, just a little tangent of like men who did not ever buy like underwear or shampoo or body wash or like soap and like never fucking put it together that some, that their partner went out and bought them this stuff. And then one day, like it was a thing on TikTok where a woman was like, Hey, when's the last time you bought shampoo? And then you see them like glaze over as you're like, yeah, that's right, dude. Like <laughs> You haven't bought shampoo in 21 years, my guy, and you have never stopped for a second and thought where that fucking soap comes from. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Uh, I could say comfortably that uh, I know very well the last time I bought shampoo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it would be, I think this also leads to a problem. He says, you know, I can very well do, do, do fine w without you, except he is not a good judge of that. Um, no, because, no. Right? Because uh, th there are definitely times when uh, it reminds me a little bit about um, the classic example of a famous person who, especially famous men, who divorced their first wife. And yep. then who the one who helped them, you know, provided the sort of emotional and familial stability uh, that let them be famous in the first place. Yep. Uh, Billy Joel is a classic example of this. Like he, he, <laughs> yeah. he still thinks his biggest mistake with he, he, he still mourns divorcing Christy Brinkley. I mean, I think we would all mourn divorcing <laughs> Christy Brinkley. I was um, going to say. <laughs> but she provided him with a sort of unconditional love and yeah. support that this is not any shade on Billy Joel's uh, current wife. Uh, but that he 
that he could value in a way and a shared life yeah. experience that he could value in a way that he can't get anywhere else. Yep. And you only sort of quote unquote miss it when it's gone. But the thing is, is that the people who really ultimately suffer from Elon not have not being the best Elon he can be are all the people around him because yeah. he can insulate himself from consequences. I mean, he has enough money to make sure that, you know, uh, uh, Elon's lifestyle is not going to be impacted. But all, think about his children. Yep. Think about the other people in his circle. Um, think about the employees that his erratic behavior might hurt because he doesn't like the color yellow. That someone who's been there with you for 12 years can be like, I know you don't like the color, but we're leaving this factory in like 10 minutes. So um, don't request, maybe don't request for them to change the color because <laughs> they're going to have to deal with it every day. And we just have to deal for, for 10 more minutes. So like <laughs> chill out, right? The value of that is extremely hard to quantify. Yes. But it is unbelievably valuable, not just to <laughs> high-performing individuals, not just to leaders, but to the organizations they run. Um, can I tell you a funny story about my space-sharing partner, Josh? Yes. He it runs Rare Brew Tea. It's delicious. He, he runs a great company. He's also just like a pathologically chill dude. And... Josh keeps me from, like I said, chasing down dead ends. Josh saves me so much time and energy. He, we're, we are, our businesses are not interlinked at all. But a few weeks ago, I texted him and I was like, you know, we're in this big industrial warehouse kind of style building. And I was like, what if we had a holiday market in here? And he texted me back immediately. Well, it's dirty. There's dust everywhere. We'd have to spend three days cleaning. It stinks in the front room and we're in a weird neighborhood and we have no parking, but we can definitely talk about it. And I was like, I texted right back. I was like, thank you, friend. That's exactly the reality check I needed. You know, it was like, before I run down, before I even let my imagination get involved in this, I need mm -hmm. somebody to say, here are all the reasons lovingly, respectfully, that this is, might be, might be a little more than you're willing to bite off and chew, you know? <laughs> Also, it's helping you avoid the sunk cost fallacy as well. Exactly. Exactly. Right? What, a, what a lovely thing to do. And also to do it in a way that is that only someone that you've known for a while can do because it's a mix of both yeah. like the straight dope and then also yeah. like the little the, the support as well. That like, yeah. but, you know, we can still talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not to let you know, but just letting you know that you should know the answer is no. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, too, Josh had a baby, I think. Well, I mean, Josh's wife had a baby a couple years ago. And my first thought was, like, you're going to be a great dad. Like, you're going to be a great yeah. dad of teenagers, especially. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, having somebody to know the difference between to, to, to have the emotional intelligence of understanding what the other person needs to hear factually, but also needs to hear emotionally is that's a particular leadership skill. And it's one that Elon Musk does not have. Uh, Jeff Bezos does not have. And I think that like one of the reasons that we're seeing this sort of panic from men and a lot of this, like these kids don't want to work one day is we are leaving the past behind of these emotionally unintelligent bosses. And we, we, you know, we find more and more that these people that we thought because they were not emotional, that they allow us to focus better on the task at hand and be better, blah, blah, blah. But in, in, in practice, you find that those, they actually gum up a lot of the works because they're not very careful with their language or they, they accidentally hurt people's feelings or, you know, they misunderstand social cues that would imply like, Hey, this is really, really important to me and I need you to be engaged with it. Right. I think that's a really, really important point that 
especially at the beginning when one's only working with a small number of people, right? Yeah. That you can get away with that, especially when those people are similarly have similar personalities and of similar needs, right? You're all yeah. a bunch of 20 somethings working out of a basement, working out of a <laughs> garage, right? You're all single-mindedly focused on this thing. Yeah. You, you take off, right? You become yeah. Jeff Bezos, you become, you, you become Bill Gates, but suddenly you're not working out of a basement. You're not working out of a garage. It's not just a handful of you anymore. Yeah. Now you need an HR department. Now you need yep. uh, accounting. Now you need marketing. Now you need all these people you didn't need before. Right. And they're not all programmers. They're not all engineers. And this is not to say mm-hmm. that all engineers are programmers this way, are, are this way. I'm, I'm just using this as an example that like different people tend to dip to, uh, be attracted to different types of work. Right. Um, that, you know, someone who's very attracted um, to teaching like elementary school children, right. Uh, they're <laughs> not going to be as attracted to say like, you know, uh, working for Elon Musk at a startup as a coder. I was going to say, sitting in an office and staring at lines of code for 12 hours a time and not speaking to anybody. Exactly. And, and this is this is not a value judgment. I'm being very, I want to be very clear. This is not a value judgment. It's in, no, no. instead a recognition of people's different needs and wants. I was going to say, and we need both of those people. Like, yes. one of my favorite people that I ever worked with, we would never be like friends in real life, but like, God damn it, Melissa at Central Restaurant Products. She was our benefits manager. <clears throat> Excuse me. So sorry about that. And she loved, she fucking loved filling out spreadsheets and she loved doing paperwork. And I, I, you know, I, I zone out as soon as I get to like line three on those like really dense paper. And I would go to her and be like, Melissa, I don't understand this. Could you explain it to me? And she would say, sure. And then she would sit down and read this really dense piece of, I could not parse it. And she would say, okay, well, this is about, you know, so-and-so benefits. And like, this is, and I would say, okay, what do I need to do? And she's like, oh yeah, you need to sign this. And then you need to go here. And she would write down just the condensed directions on like a post-it note. And like that woman saved me so much heartache and time and feeling stupid. And like, she was so invaluable and everyone, like no one appreciated her. And I just... There, those people are so deeply undervalued and it takes all kinds. And the thing that I love about, about running a business is exactly that. It is meeting people who have all these different skill sets. Like Grace, my assistant, my, my production manager is like, she is both, um, you know, precise, like she's fast, she's efficient, but also she's um, an incredibly talented, just like artist and chef kind of in her own right. And I told her, you know, Tell me what you want to do after you're done with Metal Honey Foods. Like, let's let's do what we can do to to harness your skills so it benefits me, but also we can put it on your resume and you can move on to do that thing that feels like the next right thing. But again, to do that, you have to think of your employees as people. Yeah, exactly. They're not just line items in a budget. Like, yeah. Let's make this very, very clear that, you know, there are certain jobs that require that sort of uh, clear-eyed and cold-hearted analysis, but that is not actually what the leader at the top of, of an organization uh, needs to be conveying. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. That this is the reason why you have, you know, uh, uh, delegation. This is why you have separation of responsibilities. This is why in the, in uh, up in the air, uh, George Clooney's character has a job. Yep. That the, it, it might seem cold 
right, to hire someone to uh, fire other people, to let them go. But what what's important there is that as you, you know, let's say, you know, you, Sarah, um, you, you, let's say you have to let someone go. Yeah. Right. From your business. Let's say you have a giant business. <laughs> right. Let's say you have a giant business. Do you think you would be the right person to do that? I mean, for a lot of reasons, uh, I would say no. I mean, I, I could do it, right? Like, I, I, I feel like I would be able to have the compassion to do it. Um, but also on the flip side, if you are respecting your own humanity as a person, right, like, there are some people who are just better at delivering bad news. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who got her hours cut in half and no one said anything. You know, it was like, she just showed up to work one day and her hours were cut in half. And she's like, all I wanted was a conversation from one manager, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wanted one person who was good at respectfully breaking bad news to say, Hey, sorry about this. Hopefully we'll get to make up those hours, whatever. But <clears throat> delivering bad news to answer your question I think I'd be fine at it, but I think that there would be someone out there who'd be a lot better at it. I mean, that's why those people, part of the reason that companies hire those people to like come in and fire people is they're so nice. It literally reduces the risk that someone will come back with a gun. It's not a joke. I want to be very clear. The reason is that you'd be fine at it. I agree, but you're not the best person to do it. And it's not, and it's, it's, and also since you're the one heading the organization, it will impact your relationship with that person moving forward. Because yep. as we've seen with Twitter, sometimes you need to hire people back. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you fired them and you realize you immediately need them. Yeah. Um, that the way it's handled, the way it's done can either disrupt, destroy, or preserve the relationship. Yeah. And you can imagine disrupt is bad, but destroy yep. is worse. <laughs> Yep. And because when you destroy the relationship, if you need the person back or anyone in that person's circle, uh, so to say, then there's no chance of reconciliation because you've destroyed the trust. Yep. Right. And this is a wrecking. I think this is where viewing people as sort of fungible and not as people as <laughs> uh, means to running your company as opposed to like yeah. important ends in and of themselves. Um you end up reducing your talent available talent pool. Yeah. That like, you know what people really hate is being reduced to <laughs> what can, what can you do for me lately? Signed your boss, you know? Exactly. And then when they try to circle back to you, wait, actually it was a mistake. We do need you back. The human <laughs> response and the response you will get is go F yourself. <laughs> That's right. That's right. right. Because the other person basically exerted their power over you by firing you and did it in a way that's really dickish. (laughs) So the human tendency is not to go to rationally examine the offer coming back. It's to say, well, you just fucked me. So no, fuck you. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But if you do it, if if you manage the relationship, even a termination, in a way that is respectful and kind and treats uh, the person as a full person, hmm. then when you come back to them, their response still might be no. Right. But it's not going to be a fuck no. Right. <laughs> and there's actually a probability that in a, for a small handful of them, the answer might be yes. Right. Right. And because also how- if people don't know this, <clears throat> this happens all the time in the tech sector. Yeah. Like, 
just my my partner and his stories, <clears throat> the number of times people get either bought out or taken over, they get fired. And then, you know, a week and a half later, someone's calling them desperately on their cell phone saying, hey, please, we, we just need the patch for X, Y, or Z. Like, how did you do this before? It happens all the time in the tech sector, which is especially why this is such a surprising and bold and outright fuck you. You know what I mean? And the thing is that if you do that, if you handle the 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 termination properly, the person might say, sure. Right. right? It might not be as a full-time employee. It might just be on a contract to fix X or train Y, train people right. on Y, right? But most of the time, if, if if you handle it correctly, then the person says, sure, you know, let, let me show you how to fix that. You know, let, let's figure something out. Um, but if you tell them you're not valued, and I know <laughs> that you don't have to, when I tell them, I don't mean just say the words. I mean, demonstrate through act <laughs> that, exactly. you don't, that you don't value them. <laughs> and sometimes... You can tell someone we value you, we're keeping you, but then they look at how you've treated everyone else. Yeah. And this is something I think um, narcissists or, you know, bad leaders might not recognize is that they're so absorbed with how people are treating them. They really only care. Oh, did, was that person nice to me? Right. Did does that person like me? They don't look around at how that person treats others. Um, but for normal people, and I'll use this as an example, like uh, I went on a date with someone and the reason she said uh, she would go on a second date with me is because I was nice to our server. Yep. That pretty, pretty basic human stuff, but it's shocking how often people are like, mm, I don't think that really matters. <laughs> yeah. Right. And even if, you know, you, like, even if Elon Musk doesn't care about those things, or like, even if James Corden doesn't care about those things. <laughs> Right. Everyone else, like the James, Cor I think James Corden is actually, was actually kind of baffled yeah. by why people cared how he treated servers at a restaurant. Cause to him, that they're just the help. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, what I think he, people like him fail to realize is that other people very much care because they can see themselves as the help. I was going to say a lot of people speaking personally have been the help and I think what's so interesting, you know, about people who treat like the wait staff or the help or the maintenance or whatever, like shit, like, God damn, you made it to this point in your life without having one shitty job. Yeah. Like, how did you do that? How much privilege did you have to come from to never, ever once have to fold a t-shirt or do an overnight reset for a hundred dollars on Christmas Eve, which I did twice, you know, like. How have you gotten through life without feeling like a menial member of the underclass <laughs> such that you find yourself unable to abuse menial members of the underclass? Yeah. And I, I want to clarify here. I think that's a fantastic point because, you know, I worked my fair share uh, of those sort of jobs. I've worked yeah. at a uh, bookstore uh, that also ran a calendar store during during the Christmas months. <laughs> I once had to stand for 13 hours at one of those kiosks without oh my – God. You know, selling these uh, 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 like cheerleader uh, and outhouse um, calendars oh um, my God. in Connecticut. And the reason I had to stand there for 13 hours and there was no stool because the company policies, you couldn't lean or sit while you were working. Wow. Um, but they forgot I was there. No. They were supposed to relieve me after six hours with someone else to take the second half of the shift, but they were so busy 
that they forgot to send someone. So I just wound up there holding my pee for 13 hours at that, this kiosk again, standing. That, that, that <laughs> sounds like some Elon Musk boss shit, which but might thing, be accidental. You know, it was, like... it was, the reason why I didn't abandon post is I knew it was an accident. Because my right. boss, who had been, who was a grandmother, I want to note, yeah. um, she had been always been good to me. I knew it was a mistake, right? So when I came in, having closed up my ca- my the cash register and everything she looked at me and then went oh my god it was still you there yep <laughs> and then didn't then let me not have to work at there for the next two days everyone shuffled their schedules right. around even my my coworkers to make sure i didn't have to be there for the next two days uh yeah. to like physically recover a little bit and this is how you repair a relationship and preserve a relationship, even though I was, I only worked at that store for, I think, seven months, right? Yeah. I was still valued, not just as an employee or as, but as a person. And that made me work harder and do more and not raise a stink or a complaint or like register that as a violation of labor law, which it was. uh, Absolutely was. Yeah. But I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind right? Because of the way I was treated as a person uh, by my manager and by my coworkers. And, but that all came from the way the manager treated everyone there. So everyone there then treated everyone else with dignity, <laughs> kindness, uh, <laughs> and respect. And especially around the holidays, when pe- everyone's schedules are hard, everyone's working yeah. crazy hours, especially in retail, um, that can be hard to come by. So it was a really yeah. good lesson. And I was 18 at the time. It was a really important lesson. And this is a, on a small scale. It was at a mall bookstore. But it's an important lesson in uh, leadership and yeah. what it means to be a good boss. So let me ask you something. <clears throat> if you were, for example, a leadership coach to executives <laughs> or anyone in the leadership layer, <clears throat> and you had a sit down with Elon Musk, and he was actually going to listen to you and hmm. said, Matt, please, please, I have found your company online. I desperately need your help. I desperately need your advice. I'll do anything you say. Please, please, please help me turn this around. What would you say to him? I said, you don't need to be listening to me. What you need, who you need to be listening to are your employees. Yeah. That the employees are what make the company run. They're the ones who know way more about this than you do. Now, you've pushed out a lot of the senior people. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so there's a problem there. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they might not be willing to come back and at least have a good conversation, right? Or it yeah. doesn't mean that everyone with experience at the company is gone. That So I would say the first thing you need to do is listen to the remaining leadership you have, the remaining employees you have, to get an idea of what kind of company culture is necessary moving forward to not just make Twitter a place where they'll stay, but a place where you can attract the talent you're going to need, right, for Twitter to continue succeeding. Because Twitter is not done with shedding employees. I'm going to make this very clear. There are a lot of, all the people who, who weren't fired, but the people who are resigning now are resigning because they have other things lined up. Yep. There are other people in the process of lining those things up, right? Um, So what you want to first do is stop the bleeding. And the only way you can stop the bleeding is by listening to what your remaining employees want and need and then demonstrating to them that this breach of trust 
will not continue, that you will actually uh, listen to what they're saying and make adjustments so that if you make them promises, because you're going to have to make some of them promises, that you will actually follow through. Otherwise, you're going to end up with no one working there. And the only people who will come to work for you will know not to trust you. So that means <laughs> they're not going to give you everything. They're going to give you basically as much as they're contractually obligated to give and not an inch more. Yep. Um, and as we all know, working to rule, <laughs> uh, like, you know, uh, doesn't actually uh, help the company run because there's so much that goes into any job that can't be in the job description. By the way, um, if you want to read two more insane essays about like Elon Musk as a person, uh, his first wife uh, wrote <clears throat> a beautiful essay that's now been well circulated where she let us all know that um, she told him, I'm your wife, not your employee. And he said, if you were my employee, I'd fire you. He said that to his wife. <clears throat> then there's another essay where he's being interviewed by Neil Strauss, the longtime uh uh, Rolling Stone correspondent who wrote the game, a brilliant writer, even if he's kind of a D-bag himself. Yeah. Um, he talks to Elon Musk as Musk is going through a, a fresh breakup and is basically saying, I'm, I'm like a child, like a teenager. I'm no one without her. I'm nothing. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And Neil Strauss, Rolling Stone writer and author of the game, which is about pickup artists, talks him through like, hey, maybe if you feel like you can't like breathe without female attention, like you need to go to fucking therapy, my guy. Like <laughs> that is maybe you need to talk to somebody about that. And Elon Musk does not hear him for a split second. He's just yeah. like, continues. you're right. I just won't be the same without a woman. Yeah. And I was going to say, he like, just continues with his monologue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So the second thing I would, uh, I think those are perfect because yeah. that's the problem with someone like Elon is that he would never actually do the first thing. He right, wouldn't exactly. actually listen, right? Right. Um, the second thing I would do is that I would say you need to bring in people who are experienced in this particular business yeah. uh, because bringing in Tesla engineers is not going to save you because Tesla and Twitter not only have significantly different user bases, but also cons consumer needs, but they're also yep. different technical problems yep. um, and human problems. Uh, so like you know, getting Tesla staffed up for people to work on a line, right? A nice line, yeah. but uh, on a line is very <laughs> different than finding people to, uh, who are, you know, and because note that the people working on the line at Tesla are the people who like staff up the bulk of the company. Yeah. But at a place like Twitter, right? You're not hiring as many people like that. You're hiring people with a lot of options who are highly educated, who have in-demand skills, who are not fungible. I'm sorry, they're not. Like there yeah. is a war for talent in the tech field and we are not producing enough of these highly skilled uh, uh, individuals. Yeah. So you can't simply churn through them, yeah. <laughs> right? The same way that Amazon churns through warehouse workers. Right. So the key there is thinking about when you bring in new leadership, right? And I think the first thing you should do, the second thing you should do is after you listen is say, I'm so sorry. Uh, these are the mistakes we're making and I am turning over control to X experienced team of professionals. And I think yes. that is the second step because first you need to try to repair the relationship and then to then step aside. Yeah. Right. 
because in your heart of hearts, you're Elon Musk and you don't really care. <laughs> right? But the yeah. key is you don't have to care. I, I want to make this very clear. I am not trying to tell anybody that they should be constantly lying, right? If you are someone who is not good at the touchy-feely part of your job, like there are like there are ways to improve on that. I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about them uh, 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 at these points. But I'll talk about one person. This is observing from afar. There's one person I knew know who's very, very good at her job, but she is yeah. not good at the touchy-feely stuff. The people who yeah. have come to her uh, for help have immediately gone to someone else in her department yeah. <laughs> afterwards. And I don't want to work directly with her anymore. But the big takeaway they say is, we think she's very good at her job. We think yeah. she really knows what she's doing. She's very organized, very efficient. I just don't want to interact with her personally. <laughs> yeah right and i think at that point then you should say you just admit to yourself i don't care about that part of my job and since this person is a leadership position they should just delegate all of that interpersonal stuff yeah to their staff yeah right and focus on the things that actually make them strong which in this case is long-term planning organization internal politicking that sort of thing and I'm like, this is not an attack on your personality. This is not yeah. saying you're a bad leader. It's simply saying, these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. How do we leverage your strengths? And how do we minimize your weaknesses? And in Elon's case, his biggest strength is that he's a risk taker. He's a go-getter. He's a vi- he can be seen as a visionary, right? He can garner a lot of attention. And he does. <clears throat> he does come with a lot of clout. You know what I mean? Like he does have... An army of weird nerds willing to take a bullet for any amount of reasonable criticism against him, you know? But but he should not be the one making these sort of operational decisions. You know, he should not have been the one saying, we need to hire, fire X number of people. Let the people on your team or make a team of people who are very experienced who will make that determination themselves without your input. You need to trust their judgment. And then your goal as the leader is to then message that publicly, right? Explain it thoroughly why it's happening, right? And then uh, proceed to let the people who are good at handling this stuff handle the sort of interpersonal things, not just shotgunning out emails uh, to people that if they get an email on their work, uh, on their work account, they have a job. If they get it on their home account, personal account, then they don't have a job. This should not be like, you know, when you know college admissions, you get the fat envelope or the thin envelope. You think that you yeah. got in. It should not feel that way, <laughs> right? People should not wake up on a Monday morning and discover via email that they've been terminated, right? Oh my god! I want to know before the right before the holidays. <laughs> there needs to be a process that respects them, and if you can't do that, right, then get people who will. Because guess That's what, Elon? Like it's a lot cheaper than losing, you know, over $20 billion of valuation in three weeks. To me, like, this is my whole goal is to get to the point where all I do is delegate because, man, do you ever think about, like, as, as like, a, you know, uh, emotionally intelligent, you know, a little bit softer hearted person yourself, like, how different your careers could have been if someone said, hey, I noticed that you are more emotional, like you're better at the soft, you know, the soft skills kind of thing. Like maybe you're not thriving in this role, but I think that if we put you in X, Y, or Z role, like I think you'd be great at it instead of, 
you need to get a handle on your emotions. It's not very <laughs> professional. You know what I mean? Like, well, also there are. Why is but, that person a leader? That why is that person in management? Yeah. That's what that's what I mean. Is uh, I I just can't wait to get to the point where I see somebody for who they really are and what their skill really is and what their passion really is. You know, like. You can say that you want to be an engineer, but if I find out about you that you're a very justice-minded person, right, that you're like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, willing to be iconoclastic for the sake of, you know, creating a more uh, equal environment for yourself and others, like, I'm probably going to move that person over to HR. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. even even if, you know, if they're skilled enough to handle that job, you know, I want a person who's justice-minded to be in a position to act on the better, you know, for the betterment of, of people who don't have that much power within an organization. Does that make sense? Yeah. And those, and never underestimate how people will creatively use their skills in new environments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That a lot of time, the best job isn't about your technical skills. And this is, I'm going to tell a story about someone I worked with almost a decade ago now. Yeah. Um, he wanted to go to business school. He was a mid-career executive Uh, at a large pharmaceutical company. Um, And during the course of our work together, I realized that he didn't know algebra. Um, He had never really been taught algebra. Yeah. But um, we worked, we we did a one week boot camp where he worked like eight hours a day, hung out, taught him algebra. But we found out that through his company, there was a way to get admitted into one of the top business schools in an executive MBA program, program that did not require him to take a standardized test. Instead, yeah. it would require an essay and uh, some other screening, but it wouldn't require him to do to do that math. So okay. we said, you know what, uh, let's try that as plan A, and we have the the normal route as plan B. He gets yeah. in, and I'm like, hey, and I'm going to call him John, uh, just for just for that's not his real name, but I'm like, hey, John, um, you know, business school, um, you know, you're going to have to do a little bit of math, but because he was worried about that, right? That yeah. he's going to a, this really, you know, uh, really difficult business program. He, he's like worried about his that he, that he does. He's not going to be able to do the math. I'm like, look, your skill is in team building and in recognizing other people's strengths and putting yeah. them in a position mm-hmm. to succeed. Yeah. So when the projects you're in, right, use that, leverage that. Don't worry about your ability to do the math. Put together a team so that. Between all of you, you have the skills necessary uh, to complete the task at hand, even yeah. if you personally don't. And yeah. uh, she went, he wound up being president of his class at the uh, at the business school and um, awesome. has been extremely successful from there on out. Um, and one of the big things that he did not realize about himself was his own strengths. Yeah. That he was so focused on what he couldn't do that other people could do. Right, because he was from a working class background, he he was never a great student in school, and he was you know f- competing as he felt competing with all these people with fancier degrees with better educations. I'm like, yep. but John, people like you, people yep. like working with you, but more importantly, people like working for you because yep. you always put them, you always support them, and you put them in a position where they will be maximally effective. And yeah. who can that you might not have the creative solution to a problem, but you know that there is one and you will work with them and support them until that team gets it done. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, 
by focusing on the things he did have and leveraging those, he wound up, he, he is, he's one of my, my favorite stories uh, of all time. He also has two adorable dogs. Um, but I think that, you know, the willingness to say, okay, to, to admit to yourself. I think the biggest thing is that John could admit to himself, I'm not good at X. Yeah. And Elon can't admit to himself he's not good at, at this. Yeah. Right? He can't admit that he's not good at, that maybe his skills at managing Tesla and SpaceX don't port over to a social media company. Yeah. Right? Um, so since he can't admit that, it means he lacks the crucial emotional skill, right, for what we're, we're coining stable leadership. But I think we can just call effective leadership, but leadership that lasts. And this is particularly important at a legacy company. Uh, we, we'd be having a very different analysis if we're just talking about a, uh, a startup that's four months old. Yeah. Right. But for companies- which, which, by the way, I think I think I think that is what Musk is great at. Right. Like because he's good at like, you know, collecting clout and getting people excited about stuff and like, you know. Showing in a in a understandable layman's way, like why this technology is exciting to everybody, so on and so forth. He actually is probably a pretty great startup founder, and that he's psychotic. He is a workaholic. Like he gets hyper invested in things. He gets really excited. He's really good at getting other people excited. But this could not be further from mm-hmm. where Elon Musk needs to be. One hundred percent. And you and I have talked before, and I'm sure we'll talk on a podcast episode about the difference between like a uh, uh, the like the founder CEO yes. and then the yes. growth CEO. Yes. Right? And I want to note here, we're not even talking about a growth CEO. We're talking <laughs> about like just a maintenance CEO. Yeah, this is a legacy. Like again, we're at this point. Oh, one more thing that I found out about, about Twitter falling apart that I just love, which is um, in the digital space, there's kind of like the digital version of Sweeps Week where – um, everybody sort of determines what the value of their clicks or views are on different websites. And they meet up with like large companies. So like Time Warner and all these, you know, to do these large scale ad buys. And Twitter uh, is like one of the representatives that show up and you buy your ads there. Twitter got basically zero ad buys. And that represents about 20% of their predictable annual income. So imagine running a company anyway, just in the first place, regardless of leadership, that starting off you know, the new year, the new financial year is already out the gate down 20% of its regular revenue. Just God, incredible. That's unbelievably brutal. Yeah. Um, and like, I get, you know, Twitter, 90% of its revenues comes from ads. Elon wanted to change that. But you know how we <laughs> talked before <laughs> about, you know, uh, if you don't have an immediate replacement for that source of, uh, 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 of, of revenue or profit, um, don't blow it up. <laughs> right, <laughs> haphazardly, <laughs> you need to, you know, the the mantra of move fast and break things only works for you as an organization when the thing you're breaking isn't your organization. Yeah, and also that so that's a Peter Thielism, and um, the thing about Peter Thiel is number one, obviously evil person, fascist, etc. Yes. But Peter Thiel is as an individual individual incredibly engaged with the company that he runs. He yeah. is there. He talks to people. He is in constant communication with his uh, engineers and with his marketers. He treats everybody very professionally. Again, dude is fucking evil and he stands for evil. But as a guy that you work for, overwhelmingly, the response is, yeah, he's a pretty good boss. Yeah. 
Because the thing he's breaking isn't his organization. That's right. That's right. Right? Because he's not moving fast and breaking things internally. No, he's listening. Correct. He's going through proper business processes. He's doing all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and this is this is the thing is that like I'm going to just use myself as an example. Mm-hmm. I would make a terrible accountant. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make this very very clear. There's a reason why I I I, I don't do accounting. And it's not because I can't do the math. I can do the math. I can understand the principles. It's because temperamentally, it would feel like every workday was taking out my teeth one at a time. <laughs> yeah, same. Right? Yeah. The Actually, the only job I ever got fired from, fired from, uh, was when I was hired to uh, file. Oh, I was actually hired for something else, but I finished my project and they still had me on uh, for an extra week. So they made me file things in a uh, just a giant filing warehouse. Cool. And cool. I, I fell asleep standing up because it was just <laughs> mind-numbingly boring. Um, and then they fired me because I was sleeping on the job. Perfectly fine. <laughs> but like having worked with me for a while, they should have immediately said, you know, he's not the best fit for this. Maybe we should find him. Uh, yeah. something else to do. I would ra- much rather be abandoned uh, at, at a mall kiosk, at least that I'm interacting with people. Um, <laughs> and I think the problem we run into now a lot of the time uh, in the way that we're selecting leaders, and yes, we select people like Elon Musk in the decisions yeah. we make. And I'm not, I'm using we in a general sense, not you or me, but you know, that like investors, uh, our society chooses who to endow with these leadership positions. And oftentimes we're selecting people just for the wrong role because they were good at something else. Elon, as you noted, was a, probably would be still a very good startup founder. Yep. But just totally the wrong person, and uh, for this for this particular situation, and I think we need to when we analyze not only what we're doing within our careers but also where we choose to use our talents. Uh, and even for those of us who are lucky enough to be founders, you know, um, how we choose to hire employees, what we yeah. when we choose to exit a venture, um, we need to be honest and frank with ourselves and say, like, I am good at X. I am not good at Y. Right. This is the point where I need to get out or this is the point at which I need to turn over this thing to someone else who's better at it. Because it's the recognition of our limitations, particularly for people who are intelligent and talented, uh, like Elon. I'm not going to deny that he's intelligent and talented, but the thing that he need that he lacks is the ability to recognize his own limitations, um, and that's why he's failing spectacular. In my opinion, it's why I think he's failing spectacularly in public eye, because we're running up past the limits of his competence, and instead <laughs> of it happening behind closed doors. Right. Uh, which is like what I always told kids in my classes when I was teaching them, my students, I'd be like, it doesn't here. It doesn't count. Make we happily embrace our mistakes because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it does matter, Elon, because <laughs> you're doing it in real life. Right. Like, um, like, like, again, I love this. I love that you are 100 percent right about him having to have a little bit of, uh, as the kids say, be fucking for real uh, with himself. But again, that requires a, just a crumb of self-awareness or emotional maturity, and he just doesn't have that. So this is one of those things where, like, 
we are just going to watch the slow collapse of this company because of one man's ego, which is such a bummer, but also, I mean, predictable, you know? Yeah. And we, we've seen that also now with some other high profile collapses in the crypto space, like uh, <laughs> SBF, Sam Bankman fried Holy like, fuck. That's an entire separate episode, but this is another situation where you just have too many similar people. Um, yeah right in the same space so that instead of getting the power of markets for ideas, right. Where people with different ideas and prejudices, they all come at things, uh, problems from different uh, viewpoints and end up with a better answer because their, their biases are counterbalancing each other. Yeah. We end up pe- people who are so similar to each other, their biases wind up reinforcing and exacerbating the blind spots and biases of their peers. Ding, so, ding, ding you end up with uh, entire, you know, <laughs> billion, like you wind up with uh, entire sectors of the economy, like the crypto space, um, essentially <laughs> uh, running off the same cliff like lemmings. <laughs> I also, you, you have to laugh, right? Like this is all, all these things are born out of the same culture, which is, um, <laughs> I don't know if you, I know that you liked calling me a nerd in high school, but like, <laughs> I'm rich now. And you're like, well, but you're still an awful person. Like I, you know, those people who can't tell the difference between, um, uh, people who can't tell the difference between like, like who can't separate themselves from like themselves as a person and their, their quote unquote genius. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And I think you make a really good point is that the biggest thing that they all share is their uh, narcissism. Yeah. Right. And there's always a little bit of narcissism into starting something new. Like you and I can both admit it. We're like, there's a problem and we're the right ones to fix it. Right. There's a product (laughs) and we're the ones to do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, But I think where you are are so healthy is that, you know, you're just like, yeah, uh, maybe on like a macro level. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But not this discrete task. Yeah. Right? Not this specific detail. And you're able to yeah. say, like, maybe I'm not the right one to, to process this, the, this spreadsheet. Maybe, my, maybe I need someone to help me with this, and they need to take, take ownership of it and do it their way. I think that's, I think that's the difference, and that's why, you know, your, your company has managed to go more than three weeks uh, without lighting itself on fire in public. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Can I, I want to keep this in the show, but can I tell this story? Cause this is amazing. Please. It's happening as I'm sitting here. Um, so obviously I've had to call it a feud is a bit silly um, with the people who used to, um, who owned the kitchen that I used to run out of. Um, they're in their forties. They have basically grown children and also a baby. Um we're apparently posting um, my direct messages um, with Sarah about uh, with one of the owners about like what my problem was with this, with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I said was, you know, the reason that we've gotten into this is because you are so emotionally immature that you cannot take criticism, right? Like one of the problems is we cannot ever have a constructive conflict because you, you don't know how to do that, right? Like mm-hmm. every time I, I have a problem with you, you take that as a really personal criticism and you end up being way more defensive than the, than, you know, the conflict actually requires and it muddies the waters. Well, 
she posted all of those screenshots to her own personal Instagram, um, which is a public Instagram that is followed by people all over the city. And the thing is, while while I have made my own uh, mistakes in terms of like posting shit on my personal Instagram, like screenshots, uh, it really undercuts your point if everybody reads it and then messages me what a crazy bitch you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, this is also a problem uh, people who are that self-absorbed run into is they misjudge how other people will react. I'm sorry, say that again? So people who are that self-absorbed tend to misjudge how other people will react to a given situation or exchange um, because they lack the ability to inhabit other people's minds fully and to yep. see how they personally come across. Um, and I think that this is a classic example because, you know, you, you that this person posted it thinking that people would say, oh, yeah, yeah that's Sarah Merle. She's the worst, right? <laughs> Uh, because like, that was their reaction. But uh, in fact, it was the exact opposite. Well, the other thing is, like, the thing that's hard to explain to somebody who cannot have, <clears throat> and same thing with Elon Musk, right? Like, if you cannot have a constructive conflict without, you know, going through, going for the throat, right? Like, going into the personal or becoming personally defensive or taking any responsibility for your actions, like if the only reaction you can ever have to conflict is an unreasonable one, people stop trying to have reasonable conflict with you, right? Like they will just quit, right? Like I'm sure a lot of Elon Musk's employees were like, thank God that we got the option to quit and get three months severance. So I just don't have to deal with him. Right. And like the thing that sucks about unreasonable people is they just shed relationships constantly. They shed relationships like feathers and skin and don't notice as like their phalanx thin out and they have fewer and fewer and fewer defenders, but they can never make the connection between people leaving their lives and them not being able to have constructive conflict about things. Yeah. Their own, they can't accept that it's their own behavior. Yes. Right. That this is the old joke. The old joke is that like, if you constantly find yourself surrounded by assholes, um, <laughs> there's only one common denominator. <laughs> In all these relationships. Um, and, and so I, I want to plug not our own, uh, uh, not anything we're related to, but there's this great YouTube uh, uh, channel called Cinema Therapy. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's between a licensed therapist and uh, their two best friends. One's a therapist. The other one's uh, uh, a filmmaker. And they basically give, quote unquote, like relationship therapy to uh, like TV and movie characters. And what I love about it is that, uh, you know, <laughs> well, first of all, it's funny as hell. They're really insightful. They're just great guys. Um, but the second thing I love about it is that one of the big things uh, in a lot of the, in, in a lot of characters is that, especially the characters who are like evil or villains uh, in movies, is that they're never able to actually take ownership of their own part in bad things that happen. Yes. Um, so I think that it's important to not be a villain in real life. I think that channel can yeah. be helpful uh, in because, you know, fiction looking at characters does help us sort of like not take it personally, but hopefully provide some context that doesn't feel as personal, like a personal attack is <laughs> um, like recognizing why that lack of accountability 
uh, ultimately yeah. winds up poisoning every relationship, personal or professional. Yep. Uh, but I mean, like I was going to say, across the board, right? It doesn't matter if it's the person you barely have any interaction with at your shitty job or if it's a family member or your marriage or with your kids, whatever it is, the, the an inability to take accountability for yourself and say like, yeah, you know, I fucked up. Like, I'm not joking when I say that shit will ruin your life. It will ruin your life. So you know what will not ruin your life though? That will in fact Hot make honey. your life much better. Hot honey. <laughs> I have to say, especially with the holidays coming up, there has never been a better time to like make your, for the foodie in your life, uh, yeah. to, to simplify your holiday shopping. So, so Sarah, tell me a little bit about your hot honey. Once again, we're back. We're back. We're in a, we're in a commercial space now. So you can, you can expect that coming out in large quantities whenever you need it, but local honey infused with hot peppers. You can buy it online at metalhoney.com. I think, I think I still have stew as our, uh, okay. as our coupon code for free shipping. And uh, it's gonna we're gonna have a lot of cool stuff coming out for the holidays. So like what? What do you got? Uh, like we got little box sets going on. So if you really love one flavor, it's same flavor. You can get a, a, a regular size bottle, and you also get a mini, and you get a bunch of sweet and salty and savory Mexican candy. Uh, and you know, I think it's gonna be delicious. I think you're gonna love it. I have to say that uh, we give Metal Honey. <laughs> my mom <laughs> loves Metal Honey, uh, and she gives it as gifts. Uh, to the foodies in our lives, uh, as you know, you've seen seen the orders from. <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah, from New York, and uh, <laughs> I have to say, every single time uh, we introduce someone new to it, they absolutely go crazy, and they think it's <laughs> they think it's a little they think it's exciting that I actually know the person who like owns the company <laughs> and does that stuff. They're like, oh my god, like how did you how did you meet her? I'm like, well, you know, we do a podcast together. And they're like, what? And anyway. Uh, it's thanks it, for, it's pretty cool. Thanks for selling me like a like a miniature celebrity. I'll take it. I mean, I, I mean, you're famous. You're famous in, in my household and uh, with my group of friends. Uh, and so, <laughs> th- those of you who haven't tried it, go to metalhoney.com. Use the promo code Stew uh, and get some hot honey from a hot honey. Hell yeah! And meanwhile, um, I'm going to bully you into starting this. Um, executive business um <laughs> coaching situation i will do it until it happens yeah so we'll i'll have an announcement about that uh in a bit uh still have to come up with some of the details but thank you sarah uh i really appreciate it this was a great conversation uh, about a topic i've been thinking about a lot <laughs> uh and i'm happy to go through it with you uh but until next time uh i'm matthew goodman and i'm sarah merle this has been the perpetual stew And until next time, stay curious. Bye.